From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Politics Hour today, starring Martin Ostermule. I'm Kojo Nam. Martin Ostermule is an editor and reporter for WAMU. Martin Ostermule, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'll try to, try to do my best Tom impression as I can. Because Tom Sherwood has the day off today. He'll be back with us next week. Later in the broadcast, we'll be talking with Nancy Navarro, a member of the Montgomery County Council. Joining us now is Jennifer Wexton. She's a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, representing Virginia's 10th Congressional District. Congresswoman Wexton, thank you for joining us. It's great to be back, Kojo. Before we get to what's going on in Congress, Tom Sherwood, um, the new D.C. vaccine site seems to be finally working well. It registered a large number of people in a fairly short period of time on the one hand, but on the other hand, there's some confusion about the site apparently requiring people to provide employment verification when the D.C. Health Director had indicated that it would not. Yeah, so qu- some quick background here. Obviously, I think if you've been, if anybody's been reading the news, they've seen that vaccine registrations in D.C. were a bit of a technical nightmare over the last couple of weeks until the city rolled out this pre-registration website this week, which allows people to j- do just that, to pre-register, not, not get an appointment immediately, but at least pre-register, essentially start standing in line. Um, and I just checked the numbers. 100,000 people this week have pre-registered. It's, it's supposed to be folks with pre-existing conditions, essential workers. But the system surprised everybody. It worked really well. And we were actually debating this in the newsroom. We always cover the bad news when things go wrong. And we were like, well, we should certainly cover the fact that this thing worked. I mean, this pre-registration site actually got off the ground. It didn't collapse. It didn't f- under the weight of traffic. So that's at least good news. Now people still have to get their appointments, which is the, the next step. And um, what the, the, the problem with the employment verification, what's going on with that? Yeah, so one of the things is that, again, they're limiting it to certain people, ages 18 to 64 with a pre-existing condition or essential workers. Now, the website asks you to, 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 to say which essential worker you are, and then it says huh. you may need to provide employment verification to prove that you're an essential worker. But there's been mixed messages from the city on whether you'd actually have to show up with a piece of paper or an ID badge when you actually show up for the vaccine. Apparently, you don't have to, but they still have the question, which is throwing some people off. How about the $1.9 trillion stimulus package passed by Congress on Thursday? How is it likely to affect? You did a piece along with Jordan Pascal about how it could affect business, metro, and child poverty in the D.C. region. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, this is loads of money, obviously, and a lot of it's going to come to the Washington region, just like it is other parts of the country. And we looked at the different different buckets of money. A big one that's going to impact the region is Metro. Metro is going to get a, you know, a good chunk of money that is going to prevent service cuts, massive service cuts that could, be, could have been coming. Lots of folks are going to be getting stimulus checks, and that actually has a big benefit for local economies and for local government budgets. Um, also, if you have a family, you're in line for money if you have children. Um, so there's just a lot of kind of different money that's going to be coming at different times. And there's going to be a lot of benefits to be had. I know for the last stimulus rounds, local officials have said this really helped them avoid the worst case scenarios with their own budgets. Congressman Wexton, how will it affect the residents of your district? Oh, it'll be huge for us here in Virginia 10 and in Virginia as a whole. You know, just for Virginia 10, we're going to receive uh, about 576 
$1.4 million, and our school systems are going to receive over $333 million. So that'll really help them reopen safely and, and do what they need to do to address learning loss over the summer, perhaps. Um, and for Virginia, it's even bigger impact. You know, we're going to receive about $3.8 billion for the Commonwealth. School systems across the Commonwealth are going to receive about $2 billion total. And more important, about 7 million Americans are going to benefit from the stimulus checks. 85,000 Virginia's kids are going to be lifted above the poverty level. We have 250,000 adults who are, whose unemployment benefits aren't going to run out next week. And about $2 billion on the whole for, for Virginia's schools to help them reopen safely. So it's, it's a huge, huge benefit to us. And, uh, and it'll really help our, our, our local governments. Well, Kathleen in Virginia has a question about exactly what it will do. But Kathleen, I'll let you ask the question yourself. Go ahead, please. Hi, Congresswoman Wexton. This is Catherine from Lake Frederick. And I wonder if you can explain whether this relief bill is going to make a difference on how many vaccines Virginia can distribute. And if so, how soon will we start to see that? Well, definitely. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. It will make a big difference in terms of how many vaccines we receive to to be able to to distribute those. And it's got about twenty billion dollars just for to enhance the vac- vaccine distribution. And uh, you know, the 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 Biden administration just announced that they have they have made plans to receive another one hundred million doses of the J and J vaccine, which is already being deployed throughout Virginia Ten and throughout Virginia. And that'll really help uh, move this process along. So, you know, getting everybody vaccinated and making sure that, that it's done in a, in a very expedited way and with equity throughout the Commonwealth is something that has been very important to us in the administration. And you should look, you should see some increases in those vaccinations taking place uh, very soon. Another part of this bill is the child tax credit. Can you explain uh, why it was a priority for Democrats? Well, because, because it benefits people at the, at the lower end of the income range who really need it most. Uh, so much more than it does those at the upper end. So families with uh, children would receive an average tax cut of more than $6,000. Um, it, would, it would be a $3,000 tax, tax um, credit for kids, for families with kids, um, a little bit more for those with children under six. The poorest uh, 20% of Americans are going to see a 20% boost in their income from the relief plan, primarily due to stimulus payments and, uh, and the child tax credit. So, you know, it's going to cut child poverty in half in this nation, which is pretty remarkable. Martin Ostermuel. I'm just curious, Congresswoman, the, the debate when it was up on the Hill was about the merits of the bill to a certain degree, whether this is necessary, that sort of stuff. Now you've shifted into it's passed, the president has signed it. You guys have to do your job to a certain degree selling it. I mean, you may not have as much trouble because, again, a Democratic-leaning part of the country but still, there are parts of your district that may not agree with you or may not agree with your politics. Like, how do you sell the bill, the, the, the stimulus bill to them? What are you, what are you going to say? By talking about the merits of the bill, you know, there are people all across the Commonwealth and all across the nation who should, should start seeing those stimulus checks as soon as this weekend. You know, there are families who are going to see a real increase in their income because of this child tax credit. Um, you know, schools will start, will start opening. Vaccines will start being distributed more quickly. And, you know, I think that the proof will be in the, in the results that, that show from what, 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 uh, what, what the results are that, that the bill is able to deliver. You know, we will have schools that don't have to lay people off, local governments that don't have to lay people off. Things like here, you mentioned Metro in, in, in this district and in, uh, you know, the, the National Airport. 
Um, Dallas is a hub for United Airlines. They've announced that they have laid, they have they have delayed their layoffs or, or they won't have to lay people off. So I think when we start seeing the great results from this, it'll it'll speak for itself. Well, no Republicans voted for the package, and I suspect that's one of the things that Jim in Alexandria would like you to address. But Jim, go ahead, speak for yourself. Yeah, uh, thank you for taking my call, Kojo, Congressman. Uh, so nice to speak with you. Uh, it's a couple. I'll be really quick. Couple, two years in the President Clinton's election, you know, um, first term, Senate and the House went Republican. Same thing happened two years in the uh, President Obama's administration. Um, there was a leak of Congressman Spanberger, your colleague, where she said, we have got to tap down the word socialism, socialistic policies. Otherwise, we're going to have a repeat or words to that effect. Are you, is there a cadre of you that are going to work with Congressman Spanberger to make sure we do not get a repeat of, you know, in, in two years, what happened during President Clinton's first term and President Obama's first term? Congresswoman Wexton. Well, we're going to deliver results for the American people, regardless of their political affiliation. And I think that, that you know, we'll be able to run on our records. The Republicans, they're just the party of no. They just want to obstruct and, and just uh, throw, throw stones and gaslight the American people about what this bill really does. But the fact is, it has broad bipartisan support, you know. About 75% of the American public supports this bill. And when they start seeing the results that will be delivered, I think that they will they will feel the same way. Thank you very much for your call on the politics of the Democratic Party. Here's Peter in Leesburg, Virginia. Peter, your turn. Jennifer, this is Peter Rush. How are you? I'm well. How are you? <laughs> Excellent. Um, and, of course, thrilled about what's just happened. Uh, my question uh, keys off of the sudden chatter in the media, including today's Washington Post, that after this unity unanimity of Democrats on this one bill that we're not going to face a much more divisive situation. And even though I'm a lifelong progressive Democrat, I'm now, I consider myself to be non-ideological in the sense that I don't have a position that's a fixed star. And I'm concerned that we might find some members of our caucus to be um, essentially making the perfect the enemy of the good or the better the enemy, the, the best the enemy of the, bet, of the better. And I'm wondering to what extent you think that um, the prospect of doing a lot of good may allow us to be more unified than is being said right now. I'm not asking you to comment on individuals who might be more ideological than, than you are, because I think you're much more pragmatic in the sense that I think is the, 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 the proper way to go. But, uh, All right, allow me to have Congresswoman Weston, Rexton answer the question. Congresswoman? Well, Democrats are united more than we've ever been in my, in my time in Congress. And, you know, the, the, the Progressive Caucus, they weren't pleased about the parliamentarian's decision to, uh, to strip out the minimum wage increase. And they weren't pleased about the decision to, to drop the enhanced unemployment level from $400 to $300 and, and cut the duration somewhat. But they ended up going along with it because, you know, because it's better to have, to have a very good bill for very many people than to stand on on you know principle for for getting the perfect making the perfect the enemy of the good as you just indicated, and and I think that that will continue throughout throughout our this term. Martin Ostermill, I'm 
again, I mean, obviously, I'm sure there's discussions in the Hill that don't make it into the public, don't make it to the to the press. Were there any behind the scenes discussions between you, between Democrats, between Republican members of the House where these Republicans are saying, listen, I'd love to support the bill, but I just can't because of the current environment that we have to stand on principle on this one? Like, I'm just curious if if if, if it's as good as you say it is, like, is it really that Republicans just are the party of no or did people want to support it in the party, do you think? Only have about 40 seconds I, in this segment. I believe that some did, but a lot of them realized that, that that's going to be, that, that obstructing and gaslighting is going to be their, their path forward in 2022, and they were going to stick with the party one way or another. Got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Congresswoman Jennifer Wexton. I'm Kojo Nand. It's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at dianereem.org slash book club. Welcome back to our Congress to our conversation with Congresswoman Jennifer Wexton. She's a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, representing Virginia's 10th Congressional District. Our guest analyst today is Martin Ostermule, an editor and reporter for WMU. Tom Sherwood is off today. He will be back next week. Uh, Congresswoman Wexton, you sit on a House committee looking into the January 6th insurrection and what went wrong from a security standpoint. What are the major issues that your committee is reviewing? Well, we're trying to look into what, what went wrong and remedy them. You know, I serve on the, on the House Appropriations Legislative Branch Subcommittee, and, uh, and we, we, we control the funding for the, everything on the House side of the, of the Capitol for things like the architect of the Capitol, you know, the, the physical structure, the Capitol Police. And so we have been working through some of their requests for this, for this fiscal year and also what we're going to need to do for a security supplemental. And we were briefed uh, last week by the General Honoré and his commission about what their recommendations are. They have a lot of recommendations. Some are for the short term, some, some are for the long term. But there's definitely a lot of reforms that need to be made. Martin Ostermuth. So now that you mentioned uh, his report, one thing that was interesting was that he advises or he suggests that you have not a permanent fence like you have around the, the, the Capitol right now, but a retractable fence. But also he wants to expand the size of the Capitol Police Department and what caught my eye about that is that it would increase the size of the department to the point that it would rival D.C.'s police department. And that's a police department that, you know, polices a city of 700,000 people. So where do you stand on both this idea of a retractable fence? Do you think it's, it's a good idea? Do you think it's necessary? And what do you think especially about having that many more police officers in the Capitol Police Department? Well, for the fence, I think that I, I can't stand the fence that we have right now. I know this is something, or at least I hope this is something we all agree on that 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 is not a shining symbol of our democracy when we have these 10-foot fences with, with razor wire on top of them. I feel like I'm going to work every day in an occupied zone. So yes, the sooner they can come down, the better. They are, they're also, we're costing us $1.9 million a week 
for those fences. So now they're 1.2. I hear Tom Sherwood applauding in the background, even though he's not on the air. But go <laughs> ahead, please. <laughs> but one of the things that was most glaring about General Honoré's report that I learned was, was just how understaffed the, uh, the Capitol Police are. You know, they, there are 233 vacancies right now. They had 720,000 hours of overtime in fiscal year 20. So the officers that we have are, are, you know, they're overworked. They're unable to go through training programs or have any sort of leadership training. So they are recommending another 350 plus another 524 for a total plus up of 874. I'm not sure that they need all of those, but some of them will be necessary. And I think bringing our, our Capitol Police Force uh, numbers up so that, so that we don't have all this overtime and our, 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 our Capitol Police officers have an opportunity to actually get the training that they need and, and not be completely overworked is important. But, you know, he had a couple other recommendations, which I think were very, were very uh, useful and, and we should look into. One is the establishment of a, a dedicated quick reaction force for the District of Columbia so that we have them on, on call all the time and they're able to deal with these disturbances when they take place. Uh, better coordination between the intelligence agencies and the Capitol Police, better coordination among the Capitol Police themselves. I mean, there are so many different reforms that have to be made. It's really less a, mat a matter of how many bodies there are and how many, and more a matter of the, the processes that they have and, the, uh, and the, their ability to, to utilize the people that they have in the most efficient and effective ways. We got a tweet from Megan who says, please thank Congresswoman Wexton for co-sponsoring the background check bill. Well, done, Megan. Um, the House passed two bills to tighten gun laws this week. One expands background checks to all commercial gun sales. The other closes a, loop, a loophole that allowed some sales to go through before a background check was completed. Why were these gun bills at the top of the priority list, and how much Republican support did they get, Congresswoman Wexton? Well, gun violence prevention is something that's top of mind for me and so many of my constituents. And back, universal background checks are something that nine, over 90% of the public supports. This is another example of something that's very bipartisan out in the public, but not so much within the halls of Congress. But we did pass the, bipart the Bipartisan Background Checks um, Act with, with, Republican, uh, with Republican votes yesterday, as well as the, the bill to close the Charleston loophole, uh, which has been championed by my colleague Whip Clyburn from South Carolina in the wake of the tragedy that took place there. Um, but, you know, it's, it, is, it is such an important thing that is supported by the majority of the American people. So we're going to keep pushing to, to implement these common sense gun violence prevention laws across, uh, across on the other side of the Capitol as well. Here's Amanda in Virginia. Amanda, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi. Um, I was calling to ask um, the congresswoman. I know um, you're a mother, too. I'm a mom. I have two um, school-aged children, and I'm really anxious to get them back in the classroom. Um, but I'm worried about their safety and, frankly, mine and my husband's safety. Um, what's in the American Rescue Plan that's going to help our schools? Well, there, thank you, Amanda, for your question. There's, there's, there's millions of dollars, billions of dollars across the country for, for localities to open their schools safely and in a way that works best for them. So we're giving them the, the autonomy to figure out what works best for them. So, so what happens here in my home county of Loudoun may be different from what they do in, in you know, Buckhannon County down in Southwest Virginia. But the most important thing is that they do it safely. So we're giving them the freedom to use that money for things like hiring more bus drivers because they need to, to do more bus routes, more custodians, 
more, more ways to retrofit their schools for better ventilation programs, whatever it takes for them to be able to get reopened. And I think that, that from what I've heard from my localities around here, they're very excited for this opportunity. Amanda, thank you for your call. Your district is home to one of the largest Uyghur communities in the U.S. Uyghurs are an ethnic minority in China that apparently face persecution by the Chinese government. You co-introduced legislation to speed up the ability of Uyghurs to apply for refugee status in the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit more about the hardships they face in China and why you think this bill is important? Yes, absolutely. The Uyghur community is suffering, you know, basically genocide and and attacks in, in China in the Xinjiang province and beyond. They have been uh, scooped up out of their homes, placed in these camps and forced into forced labor and actually moved all around China. So they end up working in factories uh, where the conditions are terrible and where, where they end up producing products which we, which we end up buying here in the U.S. without any knowledge of what's happening in their supply chains. Um, but I also serve on the State and Foreign Operations Subcommittee of Appropriations and I and one of my colleagues from that committee, uh, Mario diaz Villart from, from South Florida and I co-sponsored this legislation to speed up the, uh, the asylum process. So we have people here in our community who are on our caseload who have been, who've been, been waiting for, the, for their cases to win their way through the system since 2014 and 2015 with no word. And these are people who, who fled China um, and who, who can't even communicate with their families back home because it, it, it puts them in great grave danger. So, you know, some sense of permanence and some sense of, of, of you know, the ability to have a safe haven is really important for this community. So I'm going to keep fighting for it. Martin Ostemiel. Yeah, I just wanted to, be, before, we, before we lose you for the day, I just wanted to ask you about Virginia politics, because Virginia politics is interesting this year because you guys have an, a gubernatorial election, which only New Jersey also has. So where are you on, in the governor's race? I mean, do you have a preferred candidate? Are you endorsing? Will you endorse? Like, where do you stand in what's a pretty diverse and, and could be a very competitive democratic field? Well, Virginia politics is interesting every year, as you know, but especially in these off years. Um, but, you know, I have way too many friends in that race to, to, to weigh in. Uh, so I'm, I'm watching, and I know it's going to be a spirited and, and very thoughtful and deliberate kind of campaign, but I'm not weighing in. Last month, the National Republican Congressional Committee released a list of nearly 50 House seats that it will target in 2022. Notably, your district was not on that list. Last year, you handily beat challenger Alicia Andrews. Do you think Virginia's 10th district is now solidly blue? Well, we'll see, you know, I mean, I, I certainly hope so. But Virginia is going to go through its first round of nonpartisan redistricting this year. So a lot will depend upon how they redraw the districts. But I think it's a very positive development. And, you know, my district, I know if you look at if you look at the map of Virginia 10, you see that it was definitely drawn in a creative way <laughs> that that it, there's there's different parts that are not connected to one another. So I think I will, I will look forward to representing a compact, contiguous inter- and, and communities of interest within my district in 2022. Congresswoman Jennifer Wexton, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Up next, Nancy Navarro. I'm Kojo Namdi.
Welcome back. Martin Ostermuller is our guest analyst today. He's an editor and reporter for WMU. Tom Sherwood will be back next week. Joining us now is Nancy Navarro, a member of the Montgomery County Council representing District 4. Um, Nancy Navarro, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kojo. It's good to talk to you. Before we get to uh, Montgomery County, Martin Ostermuller, what's going on in the district? The Under the former police chief, Peter Newsham, the Metropolitan Police Department used to boast about how many guns they were seizing. Now, the new chief, Chief Robert Conti, or the acting chief, Robert Conti III, apparently doesn't think that these aggressive sons, uh, gun seizures are such a great idea. Why? Well, I mean, this is one of those small pieces. It could look like a small piece of news, like some technical change and some department regulation, but it's actually a big deal. So basically, the gun recovery unit has been the, the, the police department's kind of like shining unit that goes out there and gets illegal guns off the streets. They tweet pictures of all the guns that they recover. And it's kind of this sense of like people are killing each other with guns. We're getting guns off the street. But uh, acting Chief Conti has essentially now said he's reconsidering whether they should be going after just the number of guns versus targeting specific people that may be most dangerous with those guns. So he's essentially rethinking what the unit could do. And there was a lot of criticism of the unit because apparently, I mean, some of the stuff that they did created conflict with the communities that were supposed to police. So this could be a way for him to keep focus on guns, but also try to mend some of those relationships with the communities he needs to have. On to Maryland. Apparently that in Maryland now, people who were sentenced to life imprisonment while they were juveniles will now be able to have um, their chance to have a chance at parole. How did that come about? I mean, this is this was a lawsuit. This is, again, one of those things that seems like a small headline that you may miss in the paper or miss on the news, but it's actually also a big deal, that it's just going to give people who committed crimes when they were much younger the chance to argue that I should get parole because I was young and, and dumb and didn't know better when I committed this crime. And this has been something that's been happening across the country. Um, and this all came from a lawsuit that was filed by the ACLU back in 2016 on behalf of three Maryland residents. So now Maryland is going to have to start considering age when parole requests come up. Councilmember Navarro, is that something you favor? I think that is a very important step forward. I think uh, that, you know, our uh, state uh, legislature has been taking on some really important issues, some very important bills this session. So I'm, I'm glad to see a lot of the incredible step forwards uh, that, that are being taken. It's, it's pretty historic in many ways. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan is loosening the coronavirus restrictions statewide, effective at 5 p.m. today. Restaurants, stores, gyms, and places of worship will no longer have capacity limits. Instead, um, they'll just need to ensure physical distancing between patrons. Big venues like theaters and concert halls can reopen at 50% capacity. Councilmember Navarro, what do you think about that decision on the part of Governor Hogan? Well, this was quite a surprise for us. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot of time to obviously um, digest all of this, but at the same time, you know, we are always ready to, to respond and do what we believe is in the best interest of our county. And uh, we're, we're very happy with the fact that our residents have really stepped up to follow guidelines, and that's why our positivity rate is at 2.75 at this moment. It is why right now it is really, you know, it's considered to be moderate risk of transmission uh, compared to January when we were at 7%. And so I, I think in many ways we have a really great story, but we're not ready to go to the level that the governor um, is, is proposing and, and, you know, it will come become effective at 5 p.m. 
in about an hour, the county council sitting as the Board of Health will be uh, reviewing, considering, debating a Board of Health regulation uh, to determine where we're going to land. Uh, the proposal uh, is not, of course, as you know, uh, flexible, if we will, can describe it that way as the governor, but uh, it's also you know, taking into consideration where we are and how we can begin to relax some of the restrictions while monitoring um, the metrics. And so we will be, I think, uh, at the end of the day, we will be relaxing some of the restrictions, um, but it will be in a, you know, a cautious manner. And, um, and, and we're always mindful of the notion that, you know, the state of Maryland uh, and Florida are the ones that have, um, at this moment in time, the three variants present, uh, and that is a concern for us. We also understand that we're a very tight region, so whatever happens in Prince George's County affects Montgomery County, et cetera. So we're monitoring all of these issues, but at the same time recognizing that there are some things that we can relax and then there are some things that we'll be monitoring as well. In other words, you're not going to go as far as Governor Hogan would like you to go. That's correct. We're not going to do that. Martin so, Ostermiel? I'm curious about this, because there was going to be an announcement yesterday that got postponed till today. Obviously, there was a lot of scrambling happening because a lot of people said they didn't expect the, the governor to actually announce what he announced this week. It, had he not announced that, would Montgomery County even be having this conversation? Or do you think you were forced into it because the governor has said, listen, this is what we're doing. Counties have some flexibility, but they have to lay out their own requirements. Well, there are a couple of issues to, to also note. Uh, one of them is that the governor basically rescinded the authority of the county executive. So up until now, the county council had been uh, adopting or basically blessing what the county executive would send as an executive order. That authority has been rescinded, which means that now the county council sits as the Board of Health uh, adopting a Board of Health regulation. And that shifts that dynamic somewhat, which is why we needed to take, you know, work around the clock to figure out how we were going to um, address that. And this is why we have this meeting at 1.30 to actually um, deliberate and vote on our own Board of Health regulation. Um, we had already, you know, we knew that the county executive was gonna propose some, um, you know, flexibility, relaxing some of the restrictions, but obviously this announcement took everybody by surprise. And then we had to uh, take into consideration what the governor was proposing in light of where we are and also take it into consideration the notion that we are this, you know, regional uh, uh, metropolitan area and uh, our, our borders are obviously very porous. I always say, you know, the virus or the variants are not going to stop at the border with Prince George's County and, and say, let's stop here. It's very fluid. So, so that's the reason why we, you know, <laughs> had to take a little bit of time um, in this such short notice, um, you know, period to shift to the, the council is the Board of Health versus just adopting or blessing the executive order as we used to do in the past, given that the governor has rescinded that authority of the county executive. Like other localities, Montgomery County is struggling with disparities in its vaccine distribution, and that disparity is greatest with the Hispanic slash Latino population. While 20% of Montgomery County residents are Hispanic or Latino, they make up only 9% of those who have received a vaccine. White residents make up 43% of the county's population, but they've got 52% of the population that have received the vaccine. What are some of the reasons for this, and is there anything that you and the council can do to address this disparity? Absolutely. This has been, you know, front and center um, for, for many of us since the very beginning of the pandemic. That's why last June, 
Um, I worked with my colleague Gabe Albornoz and other colleagues to launch a Latino COVID-19 uh, initiative. So this is to be absolutely strategic and, and targeted. We also did that with our Black community because we understood that the disparities um, were already showing up and they have not uh, let up. And so this is when we were talking about cases and, and mortality rate and then testing. Now we're pivoting into the issue of vaccines and what you just mentioned has been an absolute concern. Um, so the good news is that we do have you know, infrastructure that we have established. Uh, we are working with all of our partners. We have these um, hub, you know, these service delivery hubs that have been stood up around the county. Uh, we also have activated our census count committee and pivot that uh, into also reaching into all of our communities. And we have a lot of bilingual, bicultural um, components to all of this. Um, but there's no doubt that that continues to be a, a major concern. Um, nonetheless, I, I think we have some you know, good news. We, we are briefed twice a week and there are already some steps being taken and we're seeing some uh, good results with both pre-registration as well as vaccine access. But you know, the, the, the challenge has been that because people have to pre-register and obviously we don't have a centralized um, program here in the state, uh, that's been part of the challenge is that people have had to be very sophisticated and uh, you know access different points to try to get uh, a, a vaccine slot and then you have the mass you know mass vaccination sites in other parts of the state and so for communities who perhaps are you know low income or are not technologically um, you know don't have access to technology readily available perhaps are working you know out there frontline workers etc it, it has it has been a real challenge to navigate um, this hopscotch of ways of accessing vaccines. But, um, but as I said, we're, we're moving forward. We got you know, some really good updates actually this morning of um, uh, initiatives, programs that will go to where people are. So for homebound individuals, for example, partnering with these hubs who are throughout the county, um, those are some of the things that are happening right now. And, and, and I, I feel pretty good about that. Um, our, our partners who have been part of Por Nuestra Salud y Bienestar, which is the Latino COVID-19 initiative, um, have been extraordinary. They include people like, you know, organizations like the Mary Center, uh, Care for Your Health. Uh, you know, these organizations are well known in the community, Identity Inc., Casa de Maryland. All of them are working strategically to make sure that these communities are not left behind because equity is, is super, super critical if we are going to mitigate the impact of this virus throughout the county, and most specifically to make sure that these communities don't continue to suffer the way that they have uh, throughout this pandemic. It's, it's, it's a national challenge, but you know, we have acknowledged this from the very beginning, and we have, I think, you know, put forth some infrastructure that, that I know the state has looked at and other jurisdictions have looked at as well. You mentioned mass vaccination sites in the state. The Montgomery County Council has been pushing the state to open a mass vaccination site in the county, and health officials think that Montgomery College could host that site. What can you tell us about potential plans for a mass vaccination site in the county? Yeah, you know, this was a, a glimmer of, of hope. Uh, we have been pretty vocal, um, given who we are, given that it's the largest jurisdiction, given that we are the, the most diverse county and the state, and given that we also have these disparities we keep talking about, you know, uh, geographic access is really important. Uh, and we did identify a few areas which we, you know, had communicated to the state. Um, the good news is that we, you know, we've been told that, yes, that they're going to be scheduling a uh, site visit to the Germantown campus where they 
believe that uh, could be a good fit, and I hope that that means that pretty soon we'll get an announcement um, that, that, you know, that, that a mass vaccination site is, is coming to our county. And that would be important to just to know, because as President Biden has announced, uh, you know, they're definitely wrapping up now the volume of vaccines the jurisdictions will be receiving, given his announcement of, you know, all adults uh, receiving a vaccine by May 1st. And so we want to be ready and we stand ready. So um, so again, we're very pleased that there seems to be a step forward in that direction. Here's Mark in Silver Spring. Mark, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes. Good afternoon, Councilwoman um, Navarro. Uh, I do support the council for not rushing as the uh, the governor is, and there are three basic reasons. One, people should be direct in understanding what COVID is. One diagnosis from a CT scan, the doctors see what's called a crush glass appearance. Please understand, your lungs will be decimated by this virus. Secondly, over a thousand nurses, according to American Nurses Association, have died fighting this virus. So, Mark, and, 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 um, and we don't have a great deal of time. I need to, you to get where you're going. The point is slow down, don't rush, follow what the scientists say, and be prudent. Don't. Council, uh, okay. Councilmember Navarro, care to comment? Yeah, no, Mark, I appreciate your comment. I think you're absolutely right. You know, this this virus has hit everyone, you know, personally. Uh, we all understand very clearly what, what is at stake. And I think that, you know, Montgomery County has fared better because we have been very methodical in how we uh, address this issue of relaxing some of the restrictions. But, but you're absolutely right. You know, we're not there yet. And in so many ways, it's also a race against time because the fact that there were two states in the country that have identified the three variants, um, and those have been identified here in Montgomery County, means that, you know, as, as we're hopeful because of the vaccine rollout getting better and better, uh, and the Biden administration has absolutely made this a priority, it is a race against time in terms of also dealing with these variants. So we want to be we want to be measured. We want to understand very clearly and listen to our health officer, understand that there might be some um, you know, easing that makes sense. And, and so we'll be deliberating on this, uh, but we're definitely not ready to go to the same level as the governor has proposed for the rest of the state. Mark, thank you for your call. Martin Ostermiel? Councilwoman, I'm just kind of curious about this one. This is just getting a little personal on the issue of easing restrictions. As this has all happened, I mean, and it's been a year, like when restrictions had been eased in the past, like have you been to a restaurant to eat inside? Have you gone to a gym? Like how... How, have you, how has your life interacted with these restrictions and the easing of them? I'm just curious because it came up in a recent debate in the council that some members were voting for or against whether they should ease some restrictions, but they were also saying, okay, I'll vote for this, but I'm not going to go to a restaurant. That is true. And that, I think, has been, you know, the difficulty of managing, you know, and navigating this pandemic. I mean, I always say, you know, none of us got a manual to say this is exactly the way that, you know, that as a policymaker, that you should address these issues. Everybody has been looking at the data, looking at the science, you know, figuring out, okay, how do we move forward? There are different states that have adopted different measures and have ended up in different places or in similar places with different measures. I mean, this is just a real uh, puzzle in many ways. And so, I, again, I point to, you know, where we are at this moment in time in terms of our cases uh, and in terms of our transmission, um, moderate, you know, we're at moderate risk of transmission. And that 
That is good news, but, but we're not completely there. And to answer your question, I have not gone to um, eat at a restaurant. I've done takeout um, all the way through. Um, you know, I, I haven't been vaccinated. And so I tend to want to make sure that I am extremely cautious. You know, when I go out, I double mask, you know, very, very cautious. Um, and, and that's what I would say to everyone is that you should continue to adhere to those um, mandates. I know the governor is, you know, retaining the mask and the social distancing mandate. I think that's great because we don't definitely want us in the wrong signal. Um, but at the same time, you know, as we are easing some of the restrictions, I have to be mindful that I can't also just impose everything on, on residents um, necessarily. That if the data says that we can ease a little bit, then, you know, we should do that because there are a lot of people that are asking for that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's going to be a personal decision and a decision that you make for your family. Can't you get a vaccination under the government continuity provision and uh, if so, have you chosen not to at this time? Well, it is interesting. So it seems that we could probably try to get that through a mass a vaccination site. Um, and, I, you know, I've, I've looked at that. I know it's, it's a difficult process. Um, we here locally have not been invited uh, by our uh, health department yet. And I understand okay. that because obviously we still have quite a ways to go for folks who are very, very vulnerable. So I continue to you know, to be cautious and do my work and, and do everything I can. But I understand that until we get to a point where there's a lot more, you know, vaccines available, um, there are a lot more people who need a vaccine who are in a much more vulnerable uh, state than myself and, and my family. So for now, I think, I, I, you know, I will wait until the vaccines become available. You made national headlines recently for addressing a microaggression during a county council involving two IT workers. Can you explain what happened and how you addressed it? Sure. So actually, this was um, during our council session, um, during our COVID-19 uh, um, briefing, and, and precisely we were discussing the issue of these disparities and how glaring they are. And the fact that, as you pointed, uh, Kojo, you know, the Latino and Black communities when it comes to pre-registration and also vaccine as received are a very, very low percentages. I mean, you know, when you compare 8% of Latinos versus 53% of our white population having been vaccinated and in pre-registration, 10% Latinos, 64% white, 9% Black, 64% white. It is it is pretty startling. And we were, we were discussing this and I was, I was making some comments regarding this data, and, um, and it turns out, I didn't hear it because I was maybe talking too loud, but it turns out that we did have um, these two folks who were making comments about my accent and um, giggling, laughing um, about uh, the fact that I, you know, seem to pronunciate words the way I think they're supposed to be pronunciated, et cetera. And so it was public and they were, you know, journalists that were listening to, you know, reporters that were listening to this, et cetera, and it began to call me during lunch. And that's when it just dawned on me that, um, that I think we have a responsibility, you know, especially when it comes to our, our county council, you know, local governments, et cetera. This is where decisions are made uh, that have extraordinary impact on our constituents. And it means that we have to promote a culture throughout um, that is respectful and that is uh, understanding of uh, what it means, what microaggressions are, what, what open racism is, et cetera. Um, I, I, I take that responsibility greatly um, because, as I've said in some of the interviews, you know, structural racism uh, didn't happen overnight, but it happened because there were decisions after decisions made, especially 
in legislatures, uh, in places where you know these kinds of um, structural uh, initiatives and regulations are adopted uh, that have led to this moment. And, um, and so that to me was a moment, it was an example and an opportunity for folks to also understand the connection um, and I hope that it has obviously um, created a space for people to, to, to feel identified, but also to figure out ways to, to just do better. Um, and and that's, that's what has happened. It was very surprising to me that it became a national story and also an international story because I've received messages from throughout the country and, and from other countries as well. Here now is Chris in Wheaton, Maryland. Chris, your turn. Uh, Councilwoman uh, Navarro, uh, thank you for uh, your leadership on the renaming of uh, the middle school in the Kent Mill neighborhood from its uh, inglorious past to uh, name it after uh, um, a much more appropriate leader. Uh, Can you talk about that as a teaching moment? Absolutely. Um, Yes. So now it's Ms. Odessa Shannon, uh, who was the first African-American woman to be elected to the Montgomery County Board of Education and a mentor of mine, actually, so I thought it was in a wonderful selection. Um, very important. I, th- I think that we need to, you know, understand once again who we are in Montgomery County, our Montgomery County public school system. Right now, uh, it's about 72% children of color. Um, that is just so extraordinary, and it is so critical that as children enter these spaces, um, that they have an understanding of what these names mean, um, and in this case in particular, you know, with somebody who was responsible for a lot of the redlining that happened in Montgomery County's housing policies, you know, something that to this day we see uh, some of the impact when you look at the East County, for example, you know, an issue that I've worked on for so long to bring amenities and to bring opportunities to that part of the county. So the past has a connection to the present, and it is, you know, for me, it seems so important that are, you know, beautiful children, all of them, but in particular, black and brown children who, you know, seem to continue to be affected by so many disparities, that when they enter a space like this, that they can um, feel inspired by the name uh, of those particular spaces. Um, And the community was amazing in coming together and clamoring uh, for this change. And, uh, you know, I, I played my role in terms of writing to the Board of Education and pointing this out, it is in my district. Um, also fought so that the school could be completely renovated because it was embarrassing the state that it had, you know, achieved. And so that's a really great story uh, for, for, for that community, I think, and for our county. Thank you for, thank you for bringing that up. Well, you are the first Latina um, to serve on the Montgomery County Council and the only woman, as has been pointed out in a recent article for a county that has a reputation for being progressive, you are still the only woman on the council, but you are now term limited. And I guess rather than ask you the Tom Sherwood question, I will have Chuck in, <laughs> I will have Chuck in New York City ask it. Chuck, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hey, Ms. Mavaro, I'm a big fan. I used to live in Montgomery County for about oh. seven years. I used to work in out of the council room uh, for MCM Media, and and I'm a big champion because you started this BIPOC initiative of really, really, uh, uh, you know, saving, in a sense, racial disparities. Okay, we're running out of time very quickly, but Chuck, what's your question? My question is, will you please run for higher office beyond the county? There you go. That's the Sherwood question. (laughs) Nancy Navarro, what are your plans? We only have about 40 seconds left. 
I'm working on my plans right now. It has been so extraordinarily overwhelming, uh, the sense of responsibility to respond to the you know issues of this pandemic and everything else. But I, I still have so much that I want to do. And so I'm still evaluating those plans, but I appreciate the, um, you know, the, the support here. And uh, okay. hopefully we'll be making a decision soon. Councilmember Navarro, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Today's Politics Hour was produced by Sydney Grannon. Coming up Monday, Amazon's latest HQ2 design plans have received a lot of buzz. Later this month, Arlington County will begin its public review of those plans. We're talking with Amazon's VP of Public Policy, Brian Huseman. Then, bam, oof, vroom, cartoonist and graphic novelist Judge Judd Winnick joins Kojo for Kids to talk about the newest book in his best-selling series, Hilo, and about kids and about how kids can jumpstart their own creativity. That all starts at noon Monday. Until then, have a wonderful week. And any big plans this weekend, Martin Ostermill? I'm evaluating my plans, as all good politicians say. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. I'm Kojo Nam. Thanks for listening to the Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the donate button and thanks.